So on behalf of Chess, I'd like to welcome you to the September 2017 podcast. I'm Kyle Hogarth from the University of Chicago, editor of the podcast section. Thank you for joining us today for what's going to be a terrific conversation. So I'd like to introduce my first guest uh, on the line with us is Dr. Anand Padmanabhan, Medical Director of the Blood Center, Wisconsin, and Associate Professor from the Department of Pathology, Medical College of Wisconsin in Milwaukee. He's here to discuss his article, Intravenous Immunoglobulin for Treatment of Severe Refractory Heparin-Induced Thrombocytopenia. Anand, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Kyle. And did I, did I get your last name right? Perfect. Oh, all right. <laughs> and then my next guest, and see if I can not screw up your last name, Ted, Dr. Ted Workenden, professor in the Department of Medicine and Pathology at McMaster University and the Regional Director of Transfusion Medicine for Hamilton in the Hamilton, Ontario in Canada. And he's here to discuss his accompanying editorial. Ted, thank you for joining us. My pleasure to be here. So, um... Ted or Anand, either one of you, just we always obviously like to start with some, some background for our listeners. Give us you know, a, a, an overview, and I recognize this, this, this could turn you as a loaded question because I think to give a true overview of it, we, we'd probably need a, a couple day long Congress. But uh, for the person who's in practice, and this has been clearly a field with a lot of interesting work going on most of it done by the two of you. Um, could you give us some background about HIT and sort of the various definitions that we're using, both in your editorial and ultimately in Anand's paper, and in regards to the severe refractory HIT, how are we defining things and what's the consequences, et cetera? Sure. Well, I'm happy to uh, address this. So HIT, as many of the listeners, I'm sure, are aware, is an important adverse drug reaction, important because it's relatively common in practice, important because it's prothrombotic and, in fact, has one of the highest odds ratios and frequencies of thrombosis of any, of any medical condition. And it's caused by what we call HIT antibodies, which have the peculiar property that they're strongly platelet-activating, both in vitro and in vivo. And you know, we've known about this drug reaction for many, many years, but in just the last few years, it's become evident that there is a subgroup of patients who have what's called autoimmune HIT, if I can use that term. And this is a subgroup of patients with HIT who have HIT antibodies that are able to activate platelets in vitro and in vivo, even in the absence of heparin therapy, of ongoing heparin therapy. And this is an important subgroup because these are the patients that have various uh, unusual variants of HIT, such as delayed onset HIT, that is where the HIT begins or worsens despite stopping heparin, or persisting HIT where you've stopped the heparin and the HIT goes on for many days more or even several weeks or rarely a few months, or heparin flush-induced HIT where the only exposure is a flush yet you get full-blown HIT, or even a syndrome called a spontaneous HIT syndrome, a rare syndrome where there's no proximate heparin yet you have a disease that both clinically and serologically looks like HIT. And in general, just having severe HIT with a platelet count under 20 with disseminated intravascular coagulation or DIC, these patients in general also have this picture of autoimmune HIT. And so very recently it's been recognized that all of these disparate variants of severe HIT have as a unifying feature the property that the HIT antibodies are able to activate platelets even in the absence of heparin. And so that's the syndrome that Dr. Nan's paper addresses. 
perfect. That's a that's a, I think a ter- thank you. <laughs> that was a great summary. I think of of you know the disease state for our listeners, and I, so thank you very much for that. And 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 then why don't you expand on that? And you know tell us. Um, you know what your what your group uh, looked at, and 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 then give us some idea of what was the clinical scenario that, of the patients you explored, and then let's get into the science of what you saw. Sure, uh, I'm happy to do that. Um, as uh, Ted mentioned, uh, these severe hit phenotypes, spontaneous hit, delayed onset hit, persistent hit, etc., are uh, are a real management problem. Um, as he mentioned, uh, oftentimes the pilot counts are very low with a DIC-like picture. Um, the paper that we published um, details uh, the use of IVIG in three patients with uh, a, what we would consider a severe persistent hit, actually two of those delayed onset hit as well, uh, as the hit presented after the patients uh, had gone home and were no longer on heparin therapy. Um, a recent paper uh, published by uh, the group of uh, Gruel et al. Um, uh, piqued my interest in uh, IVIG in HIT. Uh, in this paper published in the journal Blood uh, a couple of years ago, um, the, this French group uh, essentially showed that IVIG is fairly effective at uh, inhibiting uh, platelet activation mediated by a hit-like monoclonal antibody that they developed. Now, um, you know, when we encountered these uh, three patients uh, through collaborators at at other institutions, um, these people were uh, refractory to standard therapies uh, that were used, either ogatraban or bivalirudin, in that their platelet counts continued to be very low. All three patients had uh, thrombosis to various degrees, uh, and in one patient, patient one in the report, actually platelet counts were extremely low. Uh, it natured uh, even below 10,000, and it stayed low for uh, several weeks, almost three weeks. Um, the idea of using HIT um, is, uh, or sorry, of using IVIG is that the FC portion or the constant portion of the IgG molecule uh, could potentially compete with the FC portion of the platelet-activating HIT antibodies to engage the IgG receptor on platelets. It's called FC-gamma R2A, which is an activating receptor. Uh, therefore, by competition, there should be fewer hit antibodies able to bind to and activate platelets. So that is the uh, sort of the concept of how we think IVIG might help in hit. Um, all three patients, uh, as I mentioned, were refractory to standard therapies, and IVIG was used um, in two of those patients at two grams per kilo. Uh, given in um, a gram per kilo over uh, every day for two days, with the third patient receiving an additional half a gram a couple of days after the second dose. Uh, And in all cases, uh, the platelet response was uh, immediate and uh, uh, quite durable. Uh, We followed up these patients for several months, about seven to eight months, uh, for a couple of patients and uh, about three months or so on uh, the third, and uh, none of them had any recurring thrombocytopenia or thrombotic sequelae. Now, um, we had these samples from these patients in limited quantities, and so we also uh, took five additional samples from patients with severe hit 
who had to receive a type of treatment called plasma exchange or plasmapheresis because of refractoriness to therapies they were on. And so using these uh, five samples, in addition to these three uh, patient samples obtained from uh, the treated patients, we were able to show um, in a test tube that IVIG inhibits uh, uh, hit antibody-mediated platelet activation, and using pieces of the antibody, namely the FC portion or the constant portion, and the antibody binding portion or the FAB portion, we were able to show that the FC portion is both necessary and both and as well as sufficient to mediate the inhibitory effect. Now, uh, one thing to note is that there's a very common polymorphism on the IgG receptor on platelets at position 131. You could have a histidine or an arginine. And uh, that impacts how well IVIG binds to that receptor. Uh, the HH version of the receptor binds both IgG1, which is about two-thirds of what's in IVIG, as well as IgG2, which is about a quarter of a third uh, of, the, of, of, of IVIG. Now, the RR version, on the other hand, uh, is competent to bind IgG1 alone. Uh, we were able to show using the IVIG and in vitro studies that the RR version is more resistant to this inhibitory effect than the HH version. But if you use enough of it, um, uh, we used amounts equivalent to 2 grams per kilo that you give in a patient. If you use enough, then you still see inhibition of uh, all genotypes, RR, HR, and HH. Um, now, of note, uh, two of the patients that we treated were at the RR131 genotype, while one was uh, the HR. And so we think that IVIG works by competing out the heat antibody for uh, binding to the uh, IgG receptor. Excellent. And so is your both what you were ultimately able to demonstrate, and I think as, as you described, obviously, with the one uh, specific polymorphism that it, it and the nature of what's in the IG that's been given um, essentially required uh, the the higher concentration because you brought up more of the IgG one. Is, is that if I understood it correctly? That is correct. So the um, RR is competent to bind IgG one, but is not um, so for IgG two. And IgG two is a fairly substantial uh, component of uh, IVIG, about a quarter to a third, such right. that we think that, at least in vitro, a higher dose of higher amount of IVIG is required to uh, produce the same level of inhibition uh, of inhibit antibodies than they would uh, compared to what would be seen with an HH individual. Of course, from a from a practical standpoint, um, it is uh, it's not feasible to genotype these individuals and right. uh, and assess how much IVIG to give. But it, I think your question brings up an important point, which is uh, if you have a patient with these types of severe syndromes who is HH131, uh, could one get away with giving a somewhat lower dose? And that's something that our study does not um, adequately answer. No, but I would imagine from the pure perspective of if, if I have this clinical scenario arising in my ICU, um, 
the more answer might be the correct one in the absence of that data, as you said, is not going to be rapidly available the next day at the bedside. So, um, you, you know, in, especially in the obvious clinical scenario that your like your paper describes uh, with these patients with all the complications from HIT. Ted, Ted, what do you think? Well, let me make a, a comment on the dosing. So. Some of the people listening to this podcast are probably aware of a disease called ITP or immune thrombocytopenia, um, you know, idiopathic or autoimmune thrombocytopenia. So there, IVIG is a standard treatment used in severe ITP, and very many hematologists use it. And we know that a gram per kilo over two consecutive days is the standard dose. And I must say in my own practice, I give a gram per kilo and then I look at what the plate count is the next day because if the plate count's already rising and is judged safe, you might not need to give the second dose. So to give some perspective on dosing, that might end up being the same scenario in, in HIT. If you give one dose and the plate count's, say, rising the next day, maybe that's your HH patient. Yeah. As Anand was saying, and they don't need further treatment. But let, let me go out a bit on a limb. For those of you Please. who use ITP, <laughs> we know that ITP works in about 50 to, say, 70% of patients with ITP. So it doesn't work in everybody. And why is that? Well, we think ITP is a heterogeneous disease. You know, not all of it is autoantibodies that works, um, you know, through FC re- receptor-mediated clearance by the reticular endothelial system. You know, perhaps that's a common mechanism and IVIG blocks there. And anyways, the bottom line is it only works in some patients. But HIT is a very special disease. We know that at least 99% of HIT is mediated through high titer anti-PF4 heparin antibodies. These are platelet-activating through the FC gamma 2A receptor, as Anand said. And so what we're finding with the reports that are emerging for IVIG is it, it seems to work. It seems to work um, um, fairly briskly and fairly promptly. And so let me go out on a limb. Because HIT has such a very standard 99% uniform pathogenesis, maybe unlike ITP where the treatment works in half to two-thirds of patients, maybe in HIT it'll work in everybody. You know, maybe. That's, that's my conjecture. Now, that doesn't mean you use it in everybody. If you have a standard classic HIT case where you stop the heparin and start an anticoagulant, the plate count's briskly rising and everything's cooling off, that's fine. But if you recognize a patient where the hit is atypical, it's more severe, the play count's not going up right away, they have limb-threatening ischemia, they have cerebral venous sinus thrombosis, and, you know, brain infarction, uh, you know, life-threatening thrombosis from that point of view, maybe IVIG should be used early on. Uh, maybe, it's a, maybe it will turn out to be a fairly uniformly effective treatment. And so that's what's kind of exciting uh, yes. because of how we know HIT operates. Uh, maybe this is a treatment that will be uniformly effective. So that's, that's to me, a very exciting uh, development and, and conjecture. Well, and it's a... And I would... Sorry, go ahead, No, please. No, no, no. Go ahead, please. Yeah, I would say I completely agree with uh, Ted's uh, impression and opinion. Um, I think these are obviously uh, serologically confirmed cases uh, with a clean clinical story, with uh, proven antibodies, positive... Uh, and a functional assay. So I think that um, the possibility of IVIG working in, in, in a vast majority of, of hit cases is quite high. And, and maybe I should also mention, uh, Kyle, I'm sure you, you were, you're 
going to as well, is that there's been a couple of uh, letters submitted to CHEST, uh, I'm told, from other groups that have used IVIG in their patients with persistent HIT, um, um, which, uh, which will appear in print at some point. Uh, and yes. so I think certainly the preliminary experience, uh, both from, from our group and others, and, and those that have preceded us uh, at the point that we wrote the paper, uh, we tried to look very carefully in the literature, and we found about nine case reports or series summarizing IVIG use in, in about 12 patients. So I think the, that number uh, is, is likely to grow. Um, and of course, those numbers are still small, but I think at this point, it is uh, quite promising therapy, certainly for the severe uh, types of hit. Can I, can I ask you, you know, when you got the serum samples for the other five patients, those were from scenarios of plasma exchange uh, or plasmapheresis, either, either one. What, um, or to sort of balance out, you know, sort of without more data and or larger studies, um, that also feels a little bit almost, for lack of a better word, salvage in this refractory or autoimmune hit. Is there a, any thought process from either of you as to which might be preferred? Take, take, take out, like, just logistics and potential costs involved. Um, you know, the, your paper clearly shows the benefit here in this, in, from the science side of using IG, and, and I think it's well-established, you know, mechanistically. Um, but if this is an antibody-mediated disease, what about essentially the plasmapheresis plasma exchange? Does that seem to have any level of efficacy that, that either of you could address? Um, sure, I'm happy to uh, talk about that. Um, um, so I, I think a lot about plasma exchange uh, since I direct a division here in the right. world where we use plasma exchange um, for a variety of conditions, uh, particularly for facilitating uh, immunologically challenging transplants. Uh, and we have used it for the treatment of uh, severe thrombotic hit uh, and rarely um, protracted, uh, you know, thrombocytopenic hit in the past. And um, again, the numbers are fairly small, but our experience has been uh, that there's a fairly, uh, so t plasma exchange I think is helpful uh, but the, there's a fairly quick antibody rebound, uh, i.e. this treatment is not durable. Uh, it's essentially we're sort of plumbing out um, the system, uh, so to speak. Um, however, I think plasma exchange uh, uh, may still have a role. Um, oftentimes, plasma exchange, uh, certainly in, in my experience, is used too late in the disease when uh, perhaps, uh, um, you know, limb loss cannot be prevented no matter what one does, uh, but uh, plasma exchange may have a role in the uh, emergent cardiac surgery setting where you may have uh, uh, platelet-activating hit antibodies, and now you have to take your patient to emergency uh, cardiac bypass surgery where, you, uh, where you'll be exposing the patient to heparin. Uh, so I, I still th I think that plasma exchange has a role, but given um, this potential utility of IVIG in the same sort of difficult situations that plasma exchange is used in, uh, I might, may, I might uh, perhaps favor IVIG in many situations 
and reserve plasma exchange for uh, for some. But uh, Ted may have uh, certainly additional comments to that. Yeah, I don't have too much to say about uh, plasma exchange. We've only used it a handful of times, and I agree with uh, what what Anand was saying that uh, you get a rebound phenomenon. We we showed that in a paper we published in Blood. So. I think uh, IVIG makes more sense. But I do want to make a point before I forget or we as a group forget, and that is IVIG is not a replacement for anticoagulation. So the way I right. see it, and in my editorial I have a, a, a figure where I make this point, there's really two pillars of treatment. One is to anticoagulate the patients because they have intense thrombin generation. They more often than not already have a thrombosis, uh, venous and or arterial. So they need anticoagulation. So For those listening, you know, this is not a replacement for anticoagulation. But the other pillar is to interrupt the hit antibody-induced platelet activation. We've always thought very, you know, simplistically that if you just stop heparin, if it's a heparin-dependent antibody, the antibody-induced platelet activation should quickly disappear. But the irony of these autoimmune hit cases is it doesn't. They don't, they don't need the heparin to maintain antibody-induced platelet activation. So is there a way to interrupt that? And I think for the first time we have an exciting therapy that, that does that, and that's IVIG. It will interrupt the hit antibody-induced platelet activation even in the peculiar situation of an antibody that's not heparin-dependent that's, that's causing the problem. So I just want to, um, you know, iterate that there's really two pillars and one we've known about a long time, anticoagulation. We must continue to do that. But this second pillar to actually interrupt the process and to cool off the hit antibody-induced activation, that's really this exciting new development. Right. And I'd like to add, um, Ted, your paper that uh, was published recently on the use of direct oral anticoagulants is, is quite compelling uh, and it appears that uh, the bleeding profile, uh, the adverse risk profile of those that class of meds is, is, is possibly much more favorable to um, the DTIs in use uh, currently. So, you know, perhaps in these severe cases, IVAG uh, can, um, you know, help improvement uh, along with, uh, you know, these DOACs uh, significantly compared to uh, what happens today. Yeah, and thanks for for mentioning that because that's one of the messages that I took from your paper is that although it's not a main message of the paper, it was interesting that all three patients, after they were initially treated um, and then then rescued, so to speak, with the IVIG and the platelet count recovered, I noticed all three of your cases were then treated with uh, DOAC therapy and, uh, and you know, certainly there's other literature emerging on that, but that's another very exciting aspect of HIT the concept that uh, DOAC therapy might actually provide not only simpler anticoagulation because it's an oral agent, you can send the patient home on it, but it actually might give more reliable anticoagulation than the classic drugs that have been used like Argatriban and in some centers bivalirudin. You know, a lot of physicians assume that a PTT-adjusted therapy should work, and, and you know, those, that's the mainstay of treatment. But the irony is that these very severe autoimmune hit patients that have overt decompensated DIC, they're coagulopathic, and the irony is that a PTT-adjusted anticoagulant therapy frequently fails in the context of a hit-associated coagulopathy. So 
the irony is that a simple agent like a DOAC, where you're not chasing a PTT and making inappropriate dose adjustments, might actually work better. Now, those are early days, and obviously the, p- the paper we're talking about today doesn't directly address treating severe hit with a DOAC, but right. certainly the patients did get DOAC therapy as part of their management, and so that's another interesting aspect of Anand's paper in that you know, what we're almost passing off as an incidental observation is actually one of the big uh, other developments that's happening in hips. So <laughs> I, I think it does make sense to uh, let the audience uh, be, become aware of that emerging uh, therapy as well. So it's, so in many respects, the Anand's paper is really quite uh, exciting and, and innovative. And, and it's what you highlight in this figure, Ted, in the, in the sense that the, the two pillars of, you know, as as you've the patients clearly clinically moved into this category of autoimmune or slash refractory. You know, you've already, once the hit was being thought of slash established, the heparin was discontinued. But the anticoagulation side, which we clearly don't want to ever forget or ignore, but that maybe we're starting to move past the DTIs and moving into the direct oral anticoagulants. And given your paper and then given what uh, Anon found in with these patients uh, with the treatment of the IG, but that they ultimately went home uh, with the direct oral anticoagulants, um, might reflect some level of a further evolution of how we're going to be managing HIT. I agree. I concur so then let's, completely. Let, let's talk about guidelines on the management of HIT, because both of you do talk about um, you know, certain limitations already in these guidelines as, as the literature has evolved, and that's probably the inherent nature of all guidelines. You know, they, they, don't, they can't always keep up with the emerging uh, findings in the literature. But in particular, can we talk about IVIG? Um, if someone wasn't referencing your paper but instead was saying, okay, I want to reference how to treat severe hit, refractory hit, um, what do the guidelines currently state? Well, I think the idea of refractory hit is so new that the guidelines don't address it. So I've been involved in some of the previous guidelines, the ACCP guidelines from 2004, 2008, and there, of course there have been subsequent guidelines in 2012. And, you know, they, none of them actually tease out autoimmune hit, um, as, right. as far as I recall. It's, it's, you know, the hit is discussed very generically as you stop the heparin and, and you give an anticoagulant and you avoid warfarin during the acute phase, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So this is a game changer. And, and actually, your question reminds me to make an important point in that I think in general the concept of autoimmune hit is under-recognized, uh, particularly in North America. And the reason for that is the, the platelet activation test that's most widely used in North America is the serotonin release assay. And uh, as far as I know, only our lab in Hamilton routinely performs the assay in the absence of heparin. So we do it at zero units per mil heparin, at 0.1, 0.3, and 100 units per mil heparin. And so, and so by doing that, we can see that there's, there's some samples that cause strong serum-induced platelet activation in the absence of heparin. But, but in the U.S. labs, um, in general, the, the test is not performed in the absence of heparin. So I think this concept of autoimmune hit is a subgroup that has this very um, special lab feature that is heparin-independent platelet activation is generally not discussed as much in North America as it is perhaps in Europe where it's more standard to perform the assay both in the presence of and in the absence of heparin. So one of the predictions I'm going to make is as, this, as we talk more and more about autoimmune hit, and as the recognition that IVIG is a treatment for that, I think it's actually going to push the reference labs 
towards performing the test in the absence of heparin because that is the laboratory signature of this uh, variant. And, right. and, and, and that's another uh, aspect, I think, of the field that's almost certainly going to evolve as, as this concept starts you know, resonating with uh, clinicians. So that's an excellent point, and hopefully we'll see those those changes. I, I hope you're correct, and I imagine you are <laughs> in the in the cha- ways we'll see in the in the clinical reference labs. Can I ask you then right. both? And in, sorry, in the absence of that. Oh, please sorry, go ahead. I just wanted to add. So as far as guidelines, that is true. I mean, there's very little in terms of uh, guidance currently on uh, uh, if and when to give IVIG. In fact, when we looked at the time we wrote the paper for reviews on the topic. Uh, we we found I think one paper one review that talked about IVIG treatment and um, and, and I believe uh, Ted uh, one was a, a chapter from from your book that uh, talked about IVIG treatment but uh, the vast majority of uh, reviews on HIT are are silent on uh, on IVIG. Uh, and of course, uh, the body of evidence uh, so far suggests it may be a promising uh, treatment. The one thing I wanted to add about IVIG is, um, is, is as I'm sure as you know, uh, the FDA mandated uh, a black box warning for thromboembolic complications. So you know, we thought about that quite a bit. I mean, HIT is obviously a prothrombotic disease, and this is potentially a prothrombotic drug. Uh, but after looking at all of the evidence, uh, and there's a very nice uh, a large meta-analysis published um, last year in the American Journal of Hematology using thousands of IVIG-treated patients and controls, we felt that the thromboembolic risk with IVIG is, is very small, uh, if, if present. Uh, and so we thought that the, uh, in the special circumstances of these three patients, that the uh, benefits of using IVIG uh, outweighs the risk. And so that's something just to sort of keep in the back of, of your mind, but uh, it's something that a clinician might um, think about uh, before he or she administers the drug. Can I, can I ask you guys that, uh, the sort of the practical question? So, you know, I'm going to be rounding in the ICU tomorrow, and short of sending... Uh, the patient sample to Ted's lab so that we can see the uh, assay in a, in a zero heparin scenario. What, at what point should myself and my team be thinking about autoimmune hit? Like, what would be the characteristics? Because we've already thought hit, we've already sent the test and it's come back positive, and we've stopped heparin and we've started an anticoagulation um, appropriately. At what point is it, you know, is it we don't want suddenly everyone getting IVIG because they don't need it if they're responding, but it's not this phenomenon, let's leave you alone. But at what point should I also think about this so that I'm not waiting too long and, you know, let's, let's do this correctly? So what would be just some, 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 guide, some guidance from the two of you for uh, when we should be thinking about this a, a little more clearly and in the absence of having that reference lab data that would you know, kind of seal the deal for us? All right. Well, I think, you know, one should get the reference lab data, but, uh, but in the meantime, yes. there's, no, lots, absolutely. there's, lots, of, Agree. there's <laughs> lots of things you can do. So, Agree. So, so the case should look like a hit case, right? It should look like a hit case. There should be timing in relation to approximate heparin exposure. Um, you know, there shouldn't be an obvious alternate cause, et cetera. But some of the practical uh, things that 
point to the diagnosis is the ELISA test, which you generally have uh, available within 24 hours or so, should be strongly positive. So almost always these patients have strong ELISAs that are, say, 2.0 optical density units or greater. It's the occasional exception, but as a general rule, they're quite strong. Also, the patients very often have uh, DIC, and a lot of people don't know how to work up DIC in a HIT scenario. In fact, a lot of people don't even know you can get over DIC with HIT. And you're looking for a lowish fibrinogen. It doesn't have to be low. It can just be lowish. I mean, most HIT occurs in post-operative patients. Post-operative patients should have elevated fibrinogens of 400, 500, 600 milligrams per deciliter. So if you see a patient who has a thrombocytopenia that has timing of onset that correlates with HIT and you do a DIC workup, and their INR is normal or slightly elevated, and their fibrinogen is only 180 milligrams per deciliter, and their D-dimer is sky high, then that fits a picture of uh, HIT-associated DIC. And if the play count, of course, is lowish, because the autoimmune HIT patients tend to have play counts that are, say, under 30 times 10 to the ninth per liter. So, so a case that looks like HIT, a case with unusually severe thrombocytopenia, with unusually high optical density in the ELISA, and with a lowish fibrinogen, a very, very high D-dimer. That's kind of the picture of these patients. And, of course, if you've already stopped the heparin and it, two days go by, three days go by, and the play count's still very low, and, you know, if there's microvascular thrombosis, you know, if there's thromboses happening, all, all of that picture looks strongly in keeping with an autoimmune kind of hit. Okay. I, I really appreciate that because obviously we should have the correct assay, and, and as you predict, I, hopefully we'll be seeing that move in the right direction. But in, until we get to that stage, I wanted to be able to have people know, you know, in their mind, what's a framework to at least say, okay, you know what, this is looking refractory, autoimmune, it's time to give this guy some IVIG. You know, in a, in a true, you know, practical clinical scenario. Anand, do you agree? Oh, absolutely. I concur. A strong uh, clinical picture of HIT. Uh, again, uh, if you have access to the ELISA, uh, clearly strong ELISA results, as you saw um, in our patients, the three patients that were published in the paper. Yeah. Uh, and they were all persistent HIT in that they did not respond to uh, the DTI therapies that they were given. So that was, they were at a point where they said, hey, we have tried everything um, what else should we should we be doing now? In those cases, they also obviously had SRA results um, obtained, uh, but you know they were not the SRAs were not done at zero uh, units of uh, heparin, and therefore that didn't give away the clue that uh, these were a severe uh, autoimmune type hit. Uh, but um, even in the absence of that, the, sort of the clinical story and uh, uh, presentation should give the clinician an idea that this is really severe hit that might be uh, amenable to IVIG treatment. Fantastic. Guys, what haven't we talked about? What have I missed? Um, and I want to be respectful of everybody's time. Um, is there, there any kind of final thoughts or something that we didn't dive into enough? Well, well one I think... thing I... Oh, sorry, go ahead, Ted. No, go ahead, Ted. You know, one thing I was going to say is obviously there's direct morbidity and mortality from HIT, but there's also, you know, some indirect, uh, you know, health care costs of this. Uh, like one of our patients, he was in hospital uh, for three weeks because of persistent HIT, and, and, and during that uh, period of time, 
developed a decubitus ulcer, and he needed to, you know, come back uh, for wound treatment for for periods of time. So, I think that um, you know, IVIG can be potentially very helpful in. Uh, helping some of these patients with persistent hit get better, go home on a DOAC, preferably, uh, based on the recent data. So I think I think it, I think it has a role in in a subset of severely affected hit patients. Excellent, Ted. Well, and just I guess end with a little bit of word of caution is you know Anand's paper and the other experience in the literature suggests that if you give IVIG and they get sufficient dose, the play the count you know rockets upwards, right? It it cools off the hit judged on play the count recovery. Do we know that it actually reduces the risk of thrombosis? Um, I guess we don't know that. More experience is needed. I think what Anand said earlier in the back of your mind, you know, the IVIG does have a reputation for. In, in some patients potentially causing thrombosis. I think in a scenario of HIT where your HIT antibodies dramatically causing platelets to want to activate, I think giving IVIG likely really is an anti-thrombotic agent. That's, that's my guess. But, you know, it's still early days. We still need to be cautious. We still need yes. to make sure that patients are well anticoagulated. You know, anytime we're evaluating a new therapy, we always, as clinicians, we need to be mindful of uh, potential downside, but um, but I think it, you know it looks like blue skies. It does look exciting, uh, but you know it is still a new treatment, and we need to have the appropriate caution as we uh, you know, treat people with new therapies. Well, and, and it sounds like at a minimum, as we are, you know, as, if you have this scenario and you're giving the IV IG and you're seeing this dramatic platelet response, and obviously everyone's excited to see that, the the, the core value of anticoagulation is still very much needed. Yes. Yep. Terrific. Guys, thanks so much. This was wonderful and perfect. I really appreciate your, your discussion, and, and thanks so much for the, the terrific papers. Great. Thanks for the opportunity to participate. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Terrific. Have a great day.